Guten Tag, horror crazy audience. You did mean to arrive here, right? My name's Andy Roberts, as you might know, or possibly not. Anyhow, you've stumbled upon a grotty hellhole indeed, where purveyors of filth come to die, all manner of effluent discharge festers to this day, and putrid smells abound. Well, just for today, anyway. This is the Nasty Pasty Podcast, and whether you're a newcomer or a frequent visitor, I'm going to send you straight to sleep for a few moments whilst I natter away about what I'm actually about. Like many horror fans, I was brought up with the video recorder, and I consumed an absolute ton of nasty material. It didn't affect me that much, really. I'm as normal as any other fan, and I abhor violence in real life. Bit of a coward, really, if anything. But once upon a time, in my home country of the United Kingdom, the government simply didn't believe anyone, let alone children, could watch scary horror movies without developing into some sort of criminal pervert. It was in the early 80s when Britain suffered major social and political setbacks. With a recession in full boom, public cuts to spending more common than a London bus, and a populace drowning in the devastation of mass unemployment. The Tories, having promised to turn the tide of the country, were ever struggling to cope with their colossal failures. And they employed their most trusted weapon, the scapegoat. After the VHS machine swelled in popularity in the late 70s, an exhaustive VHS cassette market had sprung up to deal with the growing demand. And unlike the cinemas of the day, films released on video were not subject for review and censorship at all due to legal loopholes. Unlike the material that was arriving in theatres, a large influx of low-budget American and European material came into the country by ambitious entrepreneurs who started up very easily accomplished video shops and became film distributors. With this unfettered material popping up everywhere and being present in almost everyone's living room in a short space of time, certain conservative voices just couldn't keep their mouths shut. Someone started the fire and it soon became an inferno of mass hysteria, with horror films in the home being blamed for a rise in delinquency, perversion and serious sexual homicidal crimes. The fire spread quite rapidly through the use of nightmare stories in the newspapers and even alarmist fake news on the BBC and ITV. So eventually, the director of public prosecutions took notice, issuing the police with lists of material that he felt could be legally seized for obscenity charges. During the harried chaos of arresting distributors left, right and centre and seizing tonnes of videos, the government was urged to act and after the whole mess was finally put to bed, the list of forbidden fruits was consigned to purgatory forever and the country suffered the most stringent of censorship regulations in the free world. Well, at least that's what you'd think. In fact, over time, the government and the BBFC, who are now in charge of censorship, essentially, realised that the extreme reaction to VHS films in the home was likely unfounded. They relaxed their policies after countless legal challenges, they've pulled a few strings, and by today's standards, most of the original video nasties, as they were known, are now freely available. The whole nasty debacle sits rather peculiarly now in the annals of British history, almost like a blushing adult's school report from years ago detailing a particularly embarrassing tantrum. As I've grown up, I felt that a great injustice was done, and certainly in regards to my own movie collection. I now have to be extra cautious in case the film that I want to watch has been censored in my country because of some residual cuts slipping through to today. As a result, this podcast focuses on the same era as the Nasties, from around 1960 to 1990, but it chooses to highlight the hypocrisy of the government's actions by watching films that were not on the police's shopping list when raiding, but nonetheless have just as graphic depictions of violence or offensiveness. This week is the first week of our extreme final four weeks of the podcast, so we'll cut to the chase and express that this week's theme is necrophilia. So before we go on to the films themselves, and because I ended up on lost on a Wikipedia page during my research, let's talk just a little bit about necrophilia. Anything that ends in philia denotes a sexual preference or an attraction to that image or object. So the necro is a Greek prefix which means death. So essentially, necrophilia is the sexual attraction to dead people, but it's often just used to describe any sort of sexual interaction with the dead. It's unknown exactly how common necrophilia is amongst the general populace because of the lack of research. But some of the stuff we do know is that it's majority a male-dominated desire, with only 8% of all necrophiliacs being women. Behaviour has also been observed in many animal species. And like most other paraphilias, the bearer of such desires is given no choice really as to that aspect of their sexuality existing. 
From criminology and behavioural studies, there are actually ten classifying layers of necrophilia which denote how intense the desire is in a particular subject. Tier 1 merely role-play the act, pretending that a live partner is dead, whilst Tier 2 have only exhibited desires towards a deceased loved one. Tier 3 merely fantasise about dead people, but would never engage in the act, whilst Tier 4 become aroused at touching a corpse. Tier 5 take this a step further and derive pleasure from taking a trophy from a dead person, like an item of clothing or a piece of jewellery. Tier 6 is more disturbing in its intent, deriving sexual pleasure from mutilating a corpse. Tier 7 will engage in sex with a corpse if the opportunity arises, and then there's Tier 8, which will make efforts to regularly engage in necrophilia activities. The most dangerous of the bunch are Tier 9, who commit murder in order to engage in sex with the corpse, and Tier 10, who cannot perform sexually in any way without a dead partner. Oddly, there's also research on the motivations from such behaviour from genuine necrophiliacs. 68% desire a partner that won't reject them or resist their sexual advances, whilst 21% wish for a sexual reunion with a deceased lover. 15% are motivated simply by sexual attraction to dead people, while the same amount use the dead to overcome feelings of loneliness and comfort. Finally, 12% use sexual activity on a corpse as a power trip to break low self-esteem by gaining dominion over a body. Of course, with it being such a controversial subject, it's not surprising that its depiction in film is just as controversial. But it's been in films for quite some time, though, as early as 1968's The Strange World of Coffin Joe. It even popped up in the 1973 exploitation film Sweet Kill, and even up as recently as Nicholas Winding Revan's The Neon Demon. Today's films are two such movies, which deal prominently with the idea of necrophiles. They're the 1987 German opus Necromantic and the Belgian 1986 shocker Lucker the Necrophagus. We'll begin with the later example first, Jörg Butgerite's Necromantic. After getting out to urinate, a woman returns to her boyfriend's car and continues their journey, just before they're fatally struck by an oncoming car. By daylight, the pair of them are dead, the man pulverised to death inside the car, and the woman bisected and thrown from the vehicle. A clean-up team, Joe's cleaning agency, arrives to clean up the mess and bags all of the corpses and strewn body parts. One of the group, Rob Schmatke, is complained about for his supposed inefficiency at the role by the team leader, Bruno, whilst he returns home oblivious. At his house, several jars of formaldehyde house various body parts and internal organs, one of which he adds to with the eyeball of the dead car passenger and a whole human heart. 
He's greeted by his girlfriend, Betty, who seems to approve of the collection, later bathing in a bathtub of human blood and bath water. Rob watches a program about phobias and has a daydream of a man callously butchering a rabbit in a yard and skinning it, interspersed with Rob dissecting a corpse and removing fatty tissues. Elsewhere, a man is playing with a gun in his garden, whilst a worker some distance away is collecting apples from an orchard. Suddenly spying a bird, the man shoots his gun and accidentally catches the worker, killing him instantly. Panicked, the man wheelbarrows the body away and dumps it, leading to Joe's cleaning agency receiving a call about the body, which has by now rotted completely. Rob is tasked with taking the body away, but instead he stealthily takes it home with him. Excited to show Betty, he's overjoyed when she's delighted with the find, and they both begin sexually caressing the slimy cadaver. Betty uses a small length of steel pipe and jams it into the corpse in place of a penis, and the pair begin to have sex with it, Betty straddling the body whilst Rob licks the head and eyeball. Betty is seemingly much more interested in the corpse than with being intimate with Rob, and shortly after the threesome, the pair eat fried steak while the body hangs in the kitchen, its fluids being collected by dishes. In work the same day, Bruno becomes aggressive at the state of Rob's filthy overalls in his locker and violently drags him up to the superior's office. At home, Betty is reading a romantic novel to the corpse and converses with it lovingly before having sex with it alone. Rob is fired from his job, leading to Betty rebuking him coldly for his cowardice at not standing up for himself and for losing the only connection he had to getting her corpses. The next day, Rob buys a cat to win over Betty's affections again, but he soon discovers that she's absconded with the corpse and left him for good. While initially being quite neutral in his reaction, he soon reacts violently by burning photographs of Betty and murdering the cat by putting it in a refuse sack and bludgeoning it against the walls. He later takes a bath as the cat's corpse dries above the tub on a rack. Staring at it blankly, he eventually becomes aroused and takes a handful of the cat's entrails and smears it on his neck and chest gratifyingly. Later that night, Rob goes to a local cinema where a violent horror film called Vera is playing. Settling down, Rob watches the film in which a woman is stalked by a killer who runs a knife sexually over her clothes before cutting into her breasts. Like the rest of the audience, however, Rob soon becomes disinterested and leaves, going home and drinking a load of alcohol with a bunch of capsules in an effort to kill himself. In a haze, he dreams of himself as a corpse arising from garbage bags when a girl in white gifts him with a severed corpse's head. They begin to dance and toss the severed head between themselves, as well as the entrails. Seemingly unsuccessful in his suicide attempt, Rob awakens and then ventures out and tries to hook up with a prostitute, who agrees to be his companion. Rob drives her to a nearby cemetery and tries to have sex on a tombstone. When he fails to get erect, she begins to laugh at him, driving him into a rage and resulting in her death via strangulation. Now dead, Rob is able to perform adequately and rapes the corpse, falling asleep shortly afterwards. As the sun rises the next day, Rob is caught with the prostitute's body by a cemetery gardener. Panicking, he seizes the gardener's shovel and decapitates him with it before fleeing the scene. Now completely despondent, Rob returns to his apartment, having intermittent visions of becoming Christ and crucifying an ornamental figure to a cross, and then wildly gamboling around fresh green fields. Returning to reality, he readies himself with a blade at his abdomen and he stabs himself repeatedly in the stomach, orgasming violently in a prolonged death throw. Many weeks later, at Rob's grave, an unidentified female starts to dig up the mound. A bleak depiction of one man's futile attempt to achieve happiness in a hopeless situation, Necromantic is a German exploitation picture that focuses on the exploits of Rob, a forensic cleaner who's a practicing necrophiliac, 
with a demanding girlfriend called Betty, who's more than happy to take advantage of her boyfriend's trade. Playing with the dead, though, is no easy matter, however, and the film's catalogue of depraved behaviour showcases to us just some of the consequences when one goes out looking for a bone. The director Jörg Butgerite had already made several shorts on Super 8 and wished to transition from this stage to a full-length feature. He enlisted the help of fellow writer Franz Rodenkirchen and his friend Bernd Daktari Lorenz, because although he wished to proceed with making a movie, he actually disliked writing himself. The inspiration for the film came from several sources, one of which was Butgerite's desire to rebel against Germany's draconian censorship laws. In fact, Butgerite explains that he never intended to become a fully-fledged director with Necromantic due to this personal reason for the film's conception. He and his team discuss quite openly the raw aspects of sex, love and death, which of course are fundamental elements to everyone's lives, and he wanted to create a picture that exposed all of these themes in an unfettered state. Specifically, Butgerite wanted to avoid the more flippant attitude to death that he'd seen in slasher pictures and the non-final tone of supernatural movies. To that end, they turned to inspiration from the vast array of true crime material that the three had read over the years, and they chose the theme of necrophilia. While conceptually the idea was still quite loose, one image that they definitely wished to include in the movie was the notion that someone orgasms to their own death, connecting the theme of death to pure sexual pleasure. The first thing that was done to move the film forward was the construction of the worker's corpse, which is arguably the main centrepiece of the movie, featuring rather prominently in the film's marketing and the poster. It took around four weeks to construct in total, and it was upon completion of this macabre prop that the film began filming at all. But Garite and the others had finished the script at this point, and they began filming in earnest. After shooting just a few sequences, however, the crew realised that some of their scripted material could not happen due to either not being able to secure the locations they'd envisioned or simply because they'd brainstormed better suggestions in the midst of the process. As a result, the film's production became a lot more improvised and fluid, and surprisingly, in spite of the wretchedly grim subject matter, the crew had a lot of fun and laughter on the set. Director Jörg Butgerite attributes this to the tension built up during the special effects sequences, where they took about four or five hours of intense concentration, leading to everyone laughing heartily and releasing the stress after the shot was successful. This extended to some of the takes that the crew shot, with actor Bernd Daktari Lorenz struggling not to burst into laughter when he was confronted by Bruno's character at the forensic cleanup company. Another rather struggling actor was the old man who played the cemetery gardener, who was in fact a local gardener called Manfred Repnoff, selected purely for his elderly appearance. His scenes were the subject of several retakes, as he was not really a natural actor, and he found it quite hard to remain composed. He apparently had much longer scenes, but the final material was cut down to a minimum because of the previous issues. When the gardener has his head bisected with a shovel, for instance, the twitching corpse on the ground was played by Bernd Daktalia Renz, as Repnov could not realistically position himself in the required way in the ground. A major feature of the film, of course, are the extremely well-realised practical effects, which ranged from mere body parts and organs being on display in formaldehyde to the main sequence of a full rotten corpse being fornicated with. In the latter instance, one particularly notable and vile detail is the eyeball, which is still nestled in the decayed skull socket. During the love scene between the corpse Betty and Rob, actor Daktari Lorenz had to put this eyeball in his mouth several times to show Rob orally pleasuring himself with it. In reality, it was an actual pig's eyeball, which was purchased from a butcher's shop. By the time that they'd shot the scene, however, it was already three weeks old, and as a result was stored in formaldehyde to prevent its spoiling. Though it was rinsed, it obviously left a bitter, foul taste in the actor's mouth due to its method of preservation. In the same vein, though a shocking moment of animal cruelty towards a rabbit, the footage in question was obtained from a documentary on professional rabbit breeding and butchering, which is probably the main reason that the scene survives in the UK version that's currently available. Earlier in the necrophilia love sequence, Betty French kisses the cadaver when the eyeball slowly falls out and hits her briefly in the cheek. This was achieved by coating the eyeball in honey so that it would authentically and slowly detach. Later in the film, when Rob murders the cat out of bitterness, 
The resultant cat corpse was constructed from modelling wire and bits of papier-mâché before being covered in false fur. To represent the innards of the dead animal, scrambled eggs were whipped up and then coated in fake blood. Quite effective, really, and the overall cost of the effect was only 50 marks, equivalent to around 6 to 7 US dollars. The ending climax, for lack of a better word, was achieved by situating Dactarly Renz on his knees with the fake abdomen and legs below him. The abdomen was filled with fake blood, while the erect penis was wired up to emit the fake ejaculate and blood through a pump system. The penis itself was obtained from a sex shop, in reality a hollow toy to augment your natural size. The scene could only be shot the once though as the fake penis and effect would have deteriorated afterwards, so around three different camera angles were shot from to give the largest number of shots to work with. Eagle-eared viewers may also recognise a very familiar sound from another horror film buried in here somewhere. During the cinema sequence where Rob watches the horror film Vera, her death is played with the same memorable scream from Lucio Fulci's Zombie Flesh Eaters, where Mrs Maynard has her eyeball pierced by the shattered splintered wood. Necromantic overall is quite a depressing and bleak film for the most part, but the rough, raw and quasi-experimental way in which it's shot does bestow it with a bit of a weird beauty. Rob is our main protagonist through and through, and the story is told mostly through his perspective. He's a rather pathetic figure as main protagonists go, being quite craven, reprehensible and irredeemable in the grand scheme of things. He sort of just ekes his way through quite a miserable existence, with an overwhelming paraphilia over his head, an equally demanding girlfriend who lacks empathy, and an uncaring, loveless employer. It's quite notable that Rob's bed, which is usually a source of comfort, safety and security, is surrounded by harsh wire mesh fence. Very rarely would you see this in anybody's house, and it sort of symbolises that Rob is imprisoned in his meagre life forever, even when he's in the safety of his own home. He also doesn't speak too much in the film, comfortable to just get through each day as it comes and retire at home in the evening with Betty and their latest gruesome find. In almost every aspect of his life, however, Rob fails miserably to attain any sense of belonging or comfort. His workplace happiness and pay packet are seemingly minimal enough for him to survive, with bullying co-workers and a cold fish boss who cares very little about Rob's situation. The cowardly Rob is even further emasculated when he loses the job, removing his financial power and putting him even further down the social ladder. Betty is noticeably only positive towards Rob when he's obtained a cadaver for them to enjoy, with Betty seemingly preferring the company of a dead man rather than her living companion. When she discovers that he's lost his job, she's mainly irked that she'll be no longer able to get fresh corpses. Bit of an oxymoron, but never mind. She then promptly runs off, making Rob an impotent figure as well who can't satisfy a woman. This impotence is further explored when Rob, quite literally, cannot get erect for his prostitute companion, causing her to deride him. He cannot even remain friendly towards animals due to the horrendous state of his mind, madly attacking his cat and being comforted by bathing in its blood and innards. This madness is also explored quite well in his habit of collecting body parts in jars of formaldehyde, likening him to a mad doctor from a 50s or 60s B-movie. On a slightly unrelated note, these organ jars, generally rotten state of the bodies and the appalling state of his apartment, also suggest that he might have a tinge of mysophilia as well, which is the sexual attraction to filth and decay. After the prostitute's less than in altruistic remarks, the cinema audience around Rob also leave him cold, barely reacting to some quite vicious scenes of sexual violence on the big screen. Almost harkening back to the same theme of necrophilia, some of the audience even seem turned on by some of this violence, proceeding to neck their girlfriends or grope them rather brazenly. Another aspect of Rob's journey are his bizarre and intrusive daydream sequences, including one which involves a rabbit being slaughtered by an unknown man. It's unknown exactly why this sequence is here, really, as it could arguably be here just to introduce a cheap shock factor, as just random animal cruelty seems to do. It's been suggested online that it was possibly a pet of Rob as a child, callously killed by his father out of spite, but I'm personally not sure that this is the case. But animal abuse is usually a childhood sign of sociopathy and psychopathic behaviour as an adult, so it might be possible it's just referencing this. It's also plausible that it may be symbolic, due to it incurring within a dream sequence. 
rabbits usually represent sensitivity, vulnerability and running away from your problems, in the dream world anyway, which would fit in with Rob's scenario. Another scenario involves Rob performing an autopsy on a corpse. Dead bodies usually represent the end of a phase in one's life if encountered in dreams. So Rob's role as the surgeon in this case might actually mean that he's crafting his own end in a sense as the film goes on. After Betty leaves him and his life is deeper in turmoil than ever, Rob has quite a protracted dream sequence where he imagines himself reanimated as a corpse, reuniting with a girl in white who then gives him a severed head from a box, ultimately frolicking around and throwing the head between themselves. There's quite a few stark images here, one of which is the recurrence of the dead body image, but this time it's integrated with Rob himself. So he's now at the end of his phase quite literally, while the girl in the white dress represents purity, neutral feelings and a clean slate. So this girl, in essence, is his salvation in dream form, and she offers a severed head, which is a symbol of loss of identity, purpose and life. Rob is happy with this idea by playing back and forth between her, It's notable that after this moment, his dream becomes Rob eternally running through fields, dancing and gamboling blissfully, which in dream terms is the ultimate self-expression of your desires. After this final dream sequence, Rob's made his mind up about his pathetic existence and commits suicide. In kind of a masochistic perversion of his necrophilia, the idea of becoming a dead body overwhelms him sexually and he ejaculates violently eventually gushing blood as his stabbings become more frenzied. His death is both extravagant, violent and sensational, but it's also sad, lonely and incredibly isolated. He dies alone, forgotten and discarded by society, unable to live in a world where the living continue to disappoint him. The necrophilia is the only thing he had, so the allure of death was simply too much for him. Of course, the film does throw a bit of a wild card by having that twist at the end, where Rob's grave is trespassed on by a woman who proceeds to dig it up. You wouldn't be majorly wrong for assuming that this would be Betty, but this is apparently not the case, which I'll leave for those of you who want to see the sequel, Necromantic 2. While the film might be exploitative to the extreme, there's still plenty to like about Necromantic. If you can accept the grisly side to the film, you can get a frighteningly wonderful, tragic tale of a man forgotten by society at large, who's simply trying to find happiness and does so through the world of the dead. There's quite a few horribly memorable scenes, like the moment where Rob reveals the corpse in the bag. I mean, that's pretty damn gross, as he and Betty begin to stroke it with stringy, slimy bits of putrescence covering it. The subsequent sex scene is even more disturbing as the film technique is purposefully jagged, as though the viewer's on speed. But these elements, combined with a memorable soundtrack, signature scuzzy and grainy picture quality, and a truly demented guerrilla filmmaking style, there's truly few extreme cinema experiences that will remain with you as long as this one does. Main anti-hero Rob was played by Bernd Dactali Lorenz, who was actually not necessarily an actor. He'd performed a variety of roles in the seedier areas of German cinema. In addition to working as a set decorator and assisting with the special effects and soundtrack on Necromantic, Dactali Lorenz had appeared in some of director Jörg Butgerite's shorts, like Hot Love and Horror Heaven, and he even composed the soundtrack from Butgerite's fairy tale-esque Der Todderskind. Post-Necromantic in the early 2000s, he went into directing, producing and doing the cinematography on a variety of his own adult films, with titles like A Day with Nadine, Betty and Nadine, Milk, Boob House 2 and Bike and Bras. The ghoulish Betty was played by actress Beatrice Manofsky, who reprised her role for the 1991 sequel Necromantic 2, and she even dabbled in writing and directing herself with a 1998 movie called Dropout. Bruno was played by Harold Lunt, who likewise appeared in Butgerite's Horror Heaven and De Todder's King. One of the cleaning guys was played by Henri Boeck, who appeared in the biographical film Tom of Finland in 2017. Another of the workers was played by Clemens Schwender, who was the production and sound guy on Butgerite's serial killer film Shram. In a bit of trivia, director Jörg Butgerite himself appeared as another of the cleaners as well while the guy with the gun was played by Volker Hauptvogel, who later popped up in Schramm as well. Harold Weiss, who played the garden worker, was actually the best boy and the sound recorder for the movie, while Elke Fuchs, who played one of the prostitutes in the film, was the hairstylist for the production. 
Another prostitute was played by Patricia Leopold, who was in the short Hot Love, while Sousa Colstead, who played Vera in the movie, also played with directing, writing and doing the cinematography on her own picture, 2008's Pure Random. She was also skilled at camera work personally, and she worked in the camera department of several high-profile productions, like The NeverEnding Story 3, Copland, Godzilla, The 13th Floor, and Bowfinger. Director Jörg Butgerite was born in West Germany while the Berlin Wall was still erected. Due to the confluence of the Allied forces who controlled parts of the Federal Republic, Butgerite was able to watch a variety of horror films from both Britain, America and other European countries, and he became fascinated with monsters. Experimenting as he grew up with his Super 8 camera, he eventually found a niche of cult success with his first full-length feature, which was Necromantic. After this, he then released a handful of similar low-budget gore shockers like Der Todders King, Necromantic 2 and Shram. But he's since been relegated to TV and stage production work. Voluntarily has he cited internet piracy as massively impactful to low-budget filmmakers. On his debut full-length feature, Butgerite performed several functions such as writing, editing, casting, set decorating, still photography and even special effects. The writing was shared by Franz Rodenkirchen, who'd collaborated with Butgerite on his prominent filmography, like the 1991 sequel, uh, De King and Schramm, on both the writing and having cameos in the film itself. He also edited De Todders King and Schramm, and assisted with the directing of Necromantic, De Todders King and Schramm as well. On Necromantic alone, he also helped with set decoration, sound recording, special effects, and additional photography. The film was produced by Manfred Ojalinski, who also worked on the editing and visual effects team. In future Butgerite works, Jalinski worked fluidly as a producer, editor, visual effects guy and editor on Necromantic 2, De Todders King, Shram and a documentary entitled Corpse Fucking Art. The soundtrack was done by Herman Kopp, who returned on the 1991 sequel, De Todders King and 2017's Queen of Hollywood Boulevard. I'm assuming that this is a pseudonym for obvious reasons, but there's a John Boy Walton who's also credited with the soundtrack, apparently also working on the same films as Cop, except he's got an acting credit for Necromantic 2. The cinematographer was Uwe Bohrer, who later worked on quite a few German documentaries, like East West's Home's Best, Who's City, and Fucking Different in 2005. Finally, the special effects were done by the team of director Jörg Butgerite, main actor Bernd Dactali Lorenz, writer Franz Rodenkirchen, and finally M. Rodenkirchen, who's credited simply as Slime Supply. Upon its original release in 1987, Necromantic actually received no major controversy from the German public, and professional reviews of the film were generally favourable, highlighting the high-impact violence and the special effects, and the groundbreaking approach to violating taboos. Due to Butgerite's specific intentions, the film was in violation of the censorship mandate of Western Germany, in which all films intended for sale had to be approved prior to release by the FSK. Still active today, and then rather like the BBFC, the FSK has to approve of movies, whether for cinematic exhibition, for DVD or Blu-ray formats, and other forms as well, like adverts and movie trailers. Unlike the BBFC, though, a filmmaker is not legally obliged to put their product through the FSK, but anything that's released without them is restricted to adults only, which is what happened in Necromantic's case. Controversy did arise, however, upon the release of Necromantic 2 in 1991, which was seized around two weeks after the film was put out on charges of glorifying violence. As a result, the original movie was also temporarily banned during the kerfuffle with the authorities. In other territories, the film fared just as poorly, with outright bans in Ontario, Canada, Norway, Iceland, Singapore and Malaysia, with later bans in New Zealand and Finland occurring in 1999 and 1993 respectively. While its release was way after the video Nasty Furore that erupted several years prior, the film's distributors were automatically put off releasing it in the UK for fear of reprisal. Tensions were still flared over here in regards to objectionable content in horror, and to make matters worse, Necromantic was known to the government authorities as a majorly hot potato. 
Many fans who imported German VHS copies became dismayed when the items were seized at customs, so for a long time the UK missed out on the film entirely. This eventually changed in 2014 when the BBFC passed an uncut version for DVD and Blu-ray from Arrow Video. And today the film is bizarrely regarded as a cult curio, with way more to say than its extreme content would suggest. Interestingly, in Japan, the necrophilia scenes were toned down to the extreme and it was edited together with Necromantic 2 to make one long film released in 1991. By 2003, this Japanese version was released in Germany with all of the missing necrophilia sequences restored. So there are multiple versions of the film floating around if you want to track them down. So that was Necromantic from Jörg Butgerite. Let's leave that corpse alone now and move on to some fresher meat with 1986's Looker the Necrophagus. Two medical professionals discuss their latest admission to their ward, a criminal known as John Looker, who is under police watch for a series of murders and necrophilia crimes against the victim's bodies. While assured that Looker is sufficiently sedated, the nurse panics when she notices him opening his eye. Dismissing it, the pair leave, while Looker effortlessly removes himself from his bed, walking calmly down the corridors and towards the building's exit. As he slips inside a toilet cubicle to hide from the male paramedic who saw him earlier, the man notices the shape through a small window and investigates. Looker bursts out and attacks him, stabbing him in the eye through his pair of sunglasses. Exiting the hospital wearing the paramedic's clothes and a spare pair of sunglasses, Looker hitches a ride with the nurse from before, just as she recognises him and panics. Looker kills her by repeatedly slamming her head into the window and the steering wheel, and commandeers the vehicle himself. Driving away to a secluded spot by nightfall, Looker kisses the corpse and undresses it, pulling his own pants down and having sex with the dead body. By the morning, Looker hears on the radio of the survival of one of his previous victims, known as Kathy Jordan, who's recently been released from hospital herself. Flashing back to three years prior, Looker has handcuffed Kathy to a bed and torments her with a severed head, before relocating her to the shower and stabbing her in the throat with a rusty knife. Back in the present, Looker spies a young woman walking the streets and slyly follows her to an underground car park, excitedly attacking her and disemboweling her with a knife. Going into a phone booth, Looker browses for Kathy's address and using a city map on the streets, he manages to track down her current address. Reaching the apartment where she lives, he waits until nightfall when a prostitute and her John return to the building. 
Patiently awaiting their exit, Looker follows the prostitute as she enters a wine bar and mesmerisingly stares at her, imagining it to be Cathy. She eventually notices him and offers her services just before she buys some drugs from a dealer in the basement. Looker subsequently descends into the basement and brutally murders the dealer by ramming his head into the wall. And he then leaves the bar with the hooker giving him access to the building. During the elevator ride, the prostitute becomes concerned when Looker begins to get visually excited for no real reason, but invites him into her apartment regardless and puts some pornography on to get her client in the mood. She pops out to get into a negligee and returns, where her advances are met with hostility, causing Looker to tie her to the bed with handcuffs and straps. He sits and watches her intensely whilst in a rocking chair, eventually going to the bathroom and grabbing a pair of scissors. Becoming ever more excited and frustrated, he grabs his knife and stabs her in the neck, watching her die slowly from blood loss. After she finally expires, Looker takes over ownership of the apartment, dwelling in it for four weeks, and waiting for Cathy to return. Returning to the prostitute's corpse, by now severely rotten and putrescent, he decides to cut her clothes off and molest the body, covering his hands in her fluids, which he delightedly licks from his fingers. Now unable to help himself, Looker removes his clothes and has sex with the putrid cadaver. Finished with his business, Looker dismembers the remains and shoves them into refuse sacks, leaving the apartment to dispose of the bags. Meeting briefly with Kathy's boyfriend, Looker is forced to murder him when he discovers the contents of the bag in the basement. Meanwhile, two of the prostitute's friends, Sharon and Christine, decide to drop in on their friend and let themselves in with a set of spare keys, discovering bloody bedsheets when they enter the apartment. After quickly disposing of the body, Looker returns and catches Christine trying to escape, frenziedly stabbing her to death. Returning to the apartment, Looker kidnaps Sharon and ties her hands to a pipe, watching her struggle and then terrorising her with the prostitute's severed head, which he rubs against her face. Deciding to finally enact his plan of kidnapping Kathy, he enters her apartment and overpowers her, tying her up opposite Sharon and erupting into a violent tirade, blaming Kathy for surviving, or cheating him, as he calls it. Being driven increasingly angrier by the girl's screams, he takes out his frustration on Sharon, whom he eviscerates with a knife, as Kathy realises that her bindings are slightly loose. Pretending to have calmed down, she lures Looker nearby, where she swiftly steals his knife and plunges it into his back before fleeing. Though injured, Looker chases Kathy through the building's corridors, but is hurt again when he tries to ambush her. As he checks an elevator shaft for her hiding place, Kathy pops up behind him and thumps him forward, causing him to tumble down the elevator shaft to his death. As the film ends, a seemingly uninjured looker emerges from the building and walks down the street. What's wrong with him? Suicide attempt. Hmm. Who is this guy anyway? His name is John Lucker. A few years ago, he murdered eight girls, raped them afterwards. And when I say afterwards, I mean while some of the corpses were decomposing. A guy like that should be in a mental institution. After all, this is a private clinic. He tried to cut his throat with a little knife he kept in his bag. He did it while they were moving him from St. Jeffrey's to a new mental institution. Hey, that's creepy. Real creepy. Don't worry. They gave him a strong sedative. He'll sleep like a little lamb. Anyway, you can relax. They promised police surveillance for the night. Huh, look at the time. We're off. Okay. Let's go. Bobby? Bobby? Yeah? He opened his eyes. I swear it. Shh. You're overreacting. The drug they gave this guy is strong enough to keep you stoned for the rest of the year. <sighs> Let's go. Well, this one's a little different. While Necromantic is a pretty sick piece of cinema, it at least was trying to say something in the way that filmmakers often do. However successful or unsuccessful that may be, the approach to Necromantic is admirable, as there's something special hiding behind the putrescent slime and the grim exterior. You know, there's a reason that it's a cult film. 
Looker the Necrophagus can't really claim such infamy in the same way. Sure, it was released the year prior to Butgerite's corpse-loving opus, so it at least gets the head start on necrophilia films. And in terms of graphic content, the film showcases just as equally shocking set pieces of depravity and gore. What really sets Looker the Necrophagus apart, however, is that the approach to the subject matter is of an entirely different league. While Necromantic focused on a necrophiliac who suffers through life, failing at most of his endeavours, and finding comfort in the nihilistic resolution of suicide, Look at the Necrophagus instead focuses on a violently misogynistic, sweaty and bulbous piece of trash, who actively seeks out female victims to gruesomely murder them and fuck their slimy, disgusting cadavers. Going more for a jugular reaction, this Belgian film eschews any of the more artistic intentions and instead focuses on the extremely visceral, packaged in a palpable sleaze and sliminess that sets it apart from the comparative thoughtfulness of Butgerite's film. The film was directed by a Belgian filmmaker, a 24-year-old Johan van der Voistein, who devised the film as somewhat of a shameless screw-you to the Flemish Film Commission, who'd historically refused him any bursaries or grants for his projects. Deciding to soldier on anyway with a weird side objective of revenge, Look at the Necrophagus was devised to be as offensive as possible for the least amount of money. When coming up with ideas, van der Voistein was comfortable in making the film familiar by having women in peril at the hands of a serial killer, as that idea was lucrative and well-known already. He then went one step further and came up with the idea that this killer would violate his victims after death, to add that extra layer of unacceptability. It was obviously going to be very difficult to obtain finance due to these themes, so in order to get the adequate funding from investors, van der Voistein withheld any major details of the film's script for fear of his producers withdrawing their money. The film was originally titled Corpse Rapist, but the director found that a little bit too on the nose in regards to revealing what the film was about, and it was hard to pronounce to boot. The title Looker came about from the idea of creating a fictional name that had no real origin, but obviously it has a similar sound to fucker, as well as the word looker, in terms of staring with eyes. Shooting began in April of 1986 in Flanders, Belgium, with the total shoot lasting a mere 28 days. The opening shot was the exterior of a retirement home, though today only the church steeple remains. The hospital scene was shot in a disused casino building in Flanders, while today it's actually the offices for the Chambers of Commerce. The toilet where the male paramedic is killed, and the scene of Sharon being tied up, was also in the same location. Whilst on a trivia note, the building was also used a few years later in the opening of Emmanuel Kirvin's Rabid Grannies, which we've covered before on the Nasty Pasty podcast. A bit like Necromantic, the production was actually rather fun and easygoing on the set, with main actor Nick Van Soyt being quite enthusiastic and cordial during the shoot. Despite his reprehensible character, van der Voistein found him to be very genial to work with and easy to direct as well. Another successful element of the film was The Corpse of the Prostitute, arguably one of the most notable gross-out sequences in the film. It was constructed after visiting a local police station in the area and requesting to see photographs that they had on file of bodies in various stages of decomposition. One photo amongst them stood out, and it was this one in particular that they based the prostitute's body on. I'd say it was pretty successful. It's certainly uncomfortable to watch that scene. In spite of the shoot going quite successfully, though, the director opted not to direct for a long time afterwards, as he much preferred production work and editing compared to the mammoth task of direction. Due to some distribution and release issues that we'll detail later, Look at the Necrophagus hasn't really stood the test of time as well as Necromantic has. It's quite a short affair, being only 68 minutes long, or even 74 minutes if you've got the original VHS version, but it feels a lot longer for various reasons. Firstly, it's apparent that the budget was low enough to not supply the film with enough shots to work with. There's frequent reuse of the same shots, even within the same scene, and sound clips are also repeated ad infinitum. This, of course, is compounded by the fact that the shorter director's cut and VHS cut both use different vault materials to assemble the edit, so frequently picture quality will change noticeably and sound effects seem to play at random, sometimes even out of sync with what's occurring on screen. 
While this isn't exactly a deal breaker for seasoned exploitation hounds like me, even I found it hard not to get distracted by some of these technical issues. As a side effect of working with a variety of materials from different sources as well, the darkness on the print is sometimes variable, with some scenes extremely difficult to make out if there's very little light present in the scene, whilst others are oversaturated or muted in colour. Based on the trouble, however, that the film encountered in its release and subsequent distribution, I'm really not going to complain too much about this. It's a miracle that the film has survived at all in any form, so the fact that a completed version does exist makes me happy. One thing that isn't as easily dismissed, however, is the generally shoddy state of the film's plot and narrative. Unlike Necromantic, the film eschews any character development or backstory at all, leaving a very threadbare sequence of events that merely follows Looker as he slices and dices his way through victims. This carries on for the majority of the runtime, before ending with the previous survivor of his attack for a final girl-esque sequence. It's easy to follow, I guess, but for such a short runtime, the padding is very noticeable, especially when it's padding that you've already seen a few times in the last few minutes. Proof in the pudding is the aforementioned final girl chase, where Kathy is being chased by an injured looker through the empty apartment building. It's utterly laborious to watch due to the frequent reuses of shots and the discordant matching and editing. Added to the mix are the usual problems with dubbed films, like the dialogue which is inane to the nth degree. Characters sound very detached from the on-screen action, with little to no naturalistic reaction to what's happening in the situation. A nurse who sees a necrophiliac maniac open his eyes despite being sedated reacts to it with little more fear than if she discovered a cornflake digging into her side. Even more urgently, the prostitute who's restrained in her bed with a clearly psychotic loony hovering over her with a knife reacts so bored as though she was suffering no further indignity than being stuck in a long queue at the supermarket. When Christine and Sharon discover the fetid puddle of human remains at their friend's house, Christine blankly emits Sharon Sharon and the clip is reused three times in the space of one minute it does get a little headache inducing at times but hands down the worst instance of this comes with the Sharon in question Sharon's torture by being bound is excruciating to watch and hear and all for the wrong reasons her squeals of fear and pain are utterly ceaseless in their intensity, often looping the same screams. I often think that I'm a patient guy, and though I felt utter revulsion for the character of Looker, I was begging him to just kill Sharon just to stop that incessant screeching. that's as vicious as this that's probably not a good sign that you're actually buying into the villain's misogynistic doings and despite the film's already bare minimum plot details it even manages to screw this up a couple of times case in point the fact that a news report practically gives away the current location of kathy jordan outlining roughly where she is despite a dangerous lunatic on the loose and having an axe to grind even later, when the prostitute is explicitly depicted as having been dead for four weeks, the idiotic Christine makes a remark that she hasn't seen her hooker friend in at least a week. I mean, come on, unless you've seen her dead body already, this is a barefaced porcupine. While I'm aware that I've literally trashed the film so far, this isn't really a true indication of the film's enjoyment. Despite the rancid state of the film and its sometimes irritating quirks, it has got something about it that's enjoyable. I mean, from a gorehound's perspective, the film has an entire catalogue of strong, bloody violence to enjoy, ranging from someone being stabbed in their eyes, a few disembowelments, a few head bashings and a throat stabbing, and then there's the sexual content, which is quite inexplicit in the first instance, but the second sequence involving the prostitute is pretty grim stuff to watch. Looker really goes for it, and the scene is quite graphic in its depiction of a necrophile, 
made all the worse by the prelude to this scene, where Lucca greedily smears his hands with the putrid slime on the cadaver's surface and excitedly licks and slurps it from its fingers. Even for me, the sequence was squirm-inducing, and it's certainly a memorable exploitation moment. Lucca, as characters go, lacks that real interest that you'd want from a villain, though. Very little is explained about him other than he went on a mad eight-person killing spree a few years prior and simply looks to pick up where he left off. He has barely any dialogue in the film at all, only beginning to speak, interestingly, when he's recaptured Cathy, where he spews misogynistic language and rebukes her for apparently surviving his ordeal. He really is as shallow as he appears. He just hates women and loves to murder them and then sexually abuse them afterwards. Still, he's at least memorable, and the fact that he's got no dialogue means that you can't get that irritated at any dubious dubbings. Whilst the dialogue is insipid and dodgily dubbed, as mentioned before, there are a few moments of laugh-out-loud utterances, such as the male nurse insisting, the drug they gave this guy is strong enough to keep you stoned for the rest of the year. Another rather interesting footnote is the film's soundtrack, which has echoes of John Carpenter's synthesised score for Halloween. And the way that the film is shot in a grungy, grainy style really harkens to the style of ultra-scuzzy New York guerrilla slasher films, like Bill Lustig's Maniac, and even Kent Bateman's Headless Eyes to a lesser extent. It has that sense of madness ingrained into the blurry, scratchy film reels, and that aspect is enjoyable in almost any film. Ultimately, Look of the Necrophagus is admittedly a bit bland in terms of its cinematic credentials, with woefully bad acting and dialogue, a threadbare plot that seems to forget what it's already established, and some of the most languid pacing in film, including the slowest film end credits ever. On the other hand, it's got some pretty brutal graphic violence, some sick moments of gooey necrophilia replete with squelchy festering sounds, some maggots, and an enjoyable vibe of sleaze and 80s stalk and slash. I personally feel that the film would benefit slightly from a HD upgrade of some kind, but since it's a miracle that it isn't by now a lost movie, I'm not going to be ungrateful for its presence. If you're prepared to eat a little bit of the filth on offer here, you might find yourself onto a curio worth owning. The film's main nasty, John Lucker, was played by actor Nick Van Soyt, whose only other credit is in 1985's post-apocalyptic sexploitation film The Afterman, where he's credited as Bald Rapist Farmer. I guess Van Soyt was pretty typecast in his small filmography, as he did precious little else, but it was this role in Afterman that got him the role of John Lucker, according to the director at least. Helga van der Velde, who played Kathy Jordan, also worked in the film as a makeup artist, while the male paramedic Bobby later worked as a writer and director on several musicals. The drug dealer killed by Lucker in the basement was played by Tony Castillo, who was also the camera operator on the film, and that's it. Almost the entirety of the cast never appeared in any other film apart from this one, and a lot of the cast members were actually parts of the crew just filling in for the roles. I think this goes to show just how bare bones the production actually was. Director Johan van der Voistein was initially trying to break into chemistry in further education, before deciding to try film school. And while he did quite well academically, he disagreed with the pretentious focus on artistic objectives, and he preferred the idea of making something with entertainment value. Becoming slightly disillusioned with the whole establishment, he worked briefly for a professional corporate video production team before gathering the funds and resources together to make his own debut feature which was Look of the Necrophagus. In addition to directing the film, van der Voistein worked on the writing, producing, editing, casting and production management, and since, he's continued to work in the more dodgy areas of exploitation, producing the Belgian splatterfest Rabid Grannies, which we covered not so long ago, as well as Maniac Nurses, Toadaloo and Laundryman. In the latter two, he returned to directing after having that major hiatus, and he's on the rise again, shall we say, with Soul Copyright, The Brides, and 2019's Detention under his belt. He's even down as directing the belated sequel, Rabid Granny's 2, Ravenshaw. He's sometimes credited as James Desert, which came from Lloyd Kaufman of Troma, who suggested that he have a more marketable name for his collaborations. The writing was collaborated on by John Kupferschmidt, who also did the cinematography. Kupferschmidt's only other credit is for the 1974 Belgian arthouse movie Wedding Trough, 
which is sometimes infamously known as the pig-fucking movie. As well as Van der Voistein, the film's other producers were Philip Bays, who also did the film's special effects, costume design, sound and titles, and Andre Coppens, who did literally nothing else. This too is true of the film's six composers, including Gert Bienart, Peter Bonnet, Mark Ix, François Lamoral, Chris Minjau, and Johan Minjau. The only exception to this latter statement is Mark Ix, who did some other composition work on 1991's Yuppies, 2003's Parts of the Family, and even did some writing on 2002's Engine Trouble and the 2010 short Het Virus. The Belgian press were revolted by the film's release, and they harshly condemned the filmmakers for its intense violence and sexual depravity. Van der Voistein originally had a distributor in place, VDS, and their subsidiary BDM Distribution, but due to the ensuing controversy combined with their unreliability as professionals, only a few copies on VHS were released before the company refused to distribute the film any further. A different company, Cult Video, bought the hundreds of these unavailable, unreleased bootleg VHS tapes, as they knew of the film's controversy, and they had good faith towards van der Voistein, distributing it themselves in small pockets around the world. Due to some dodgy practices, however, VDS soon found themselves bankrupt, and the remaining film negatives in existence were passed on to a clerk who took ownership of the company's assets. With no real way of knowing what they had, the film reels were summarily destroyed as they were considered of little value, meaning that the film was essentially gone except for the VHS release. This rare release was the only known method of seeing the film until the mid-2000s, when the director discovered a French master tape with French audio that had most of the remaining footage, allowing him to reconstruct the film with English audio for the film's director's cut. Certain scenes are exclusive to this version, as they were pre-cut by the distributor VDS in the original VHS version. Scenes like the flashback of Cathy's torture were added, as well as soundtrack changes and additional sound effects. Other scenes from the VHS version were removed, such as a lengthy subplot about a nosy journalist who follows Looker around, additional scenes of Looker moving around the city, and also a sequence in a VHS store where Looker is almost discovered when a news report comes on the TV. Scenes that aren't included in either of these releases are now considered lost for good, due to the destruction of the original film reels. As it was released in 1986, the film missed the nasty scare by a few years, but due to the problematic release situation, it was probably never going to be around at the time anyway. The only way that this would have got any distribution whatsoever was from eager VHS collectors importing it from other countries. But like Necromantic, however, this was at great personal risk due to the UK customs potentially confiscating the material. There were a lot of versions of the film, though, floating around Europe and America, but it was distributed in this rather underground way permanently until the discovery of the film materials in mid-2000s. After the director's cut was forged, it was bundled with the VHS original version and released on DVD by Synapse in 2008. This is really the only version available right now, and the movie has never had a UK release at all. That is, until I found out that the UK is indeed having a future release from Tetro Video. Massive thanks to Cinema Europe from Twitter for this tidbit, but at the moment it's merely been put down as coming soon. So, just wait a little longer then, Locker fans. And that's the show for tonight, guys. Thank you ever so much for joining me once more. You're not all dead out there, are you? If you've survived my verbal assault for another episode, I'm sure that you can stomach another rotten batch of exploitation on our next episode. Firstly, though, thanks to everyone who's been sharing and retweeting our posts, as well as entering our competitions. 
Major congrats to Ash Lloyden, who won our Video Nasty Starter Pack. Your goodies are on the way to you, I promise. The winner of our Burial Ground competition will be announced in just a few moments, so stay tuned for that. We've got one final competition going live as well later, so one lucky person will be with the chance to win a copy of The House on Sorority Row on DVD. And I know, I know, I know, the bonus episode on Black Belly of the Tarantula is coming, I promise. Life's just getting increasingly crazy at the moment, in a good way of course, but all this juicy content is coming soon. Another thing which is coming soon is our Emmanuel episode, and I swear it's pure serendipity that it happens to be our 69th episode. Leaving the necrophilia behind, we're instead diving deep into the crazy world of sexploitation, with two Emmanuel movies from the Italian-born Black Emmanuel series with Laura Gemser. Tune in next week for Emmanuel in America and Emmanuel in Bangkok. Don't just expect the sex, but be prepared for a whole host of depravity, including extreme violence. But until then, however, keep your perversions to yourself and stay away from the crypts, eh? Goodbye! (laughs) 